Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as, and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Sun Young Lee from Princeton Theological Seminary. Birthing Revival, Women and Mission in 19th Century France, written by Michelle Miller-Sig and published by Baylor University Press in 2022, offers a close study on the French Reveille or the French Revival and the seminal role French Protestant women played in launching and sustaining this movement of revival and mission. Dr. Sig's work highlights how these women expressed their newborn, fervent faith in concrete ways, such as by caring for vulnerable children and women, pioneering children's education, distributing Bibles, and raising money for international mission. Because the devout women described here were more focused on taking action than documenting everything, such as their stories and um, and what they did, their history leg- historical legacy remained largely untold. Dr. Six's incredible monograph documents the previously unknown contribution of women to the renewal of the Reformed Church and the birth of mission during the French Revival. So over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this important work and examine how it sets out to make a significant contribution to the field of world Christianity and more. To learn more about this significant work, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoyed this book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with uh, Michelle Miller-Sig, the author of Birthing Revival, Women and Mission in 19th Century France. Michelle Miller-Sig is executive director of the Dictionary of African Christian Biography and the editor of the Journal of African Christian Biography. She is also a lecturer in World Christianity. The institutions where she offered lectures and courses include Yale Divinity School, Pan-African Christian University, and Baylor University. She is the North American representative for the International Association for Mission Studies for the 2022-2026 term. Dr. Sig has a PhD from Boston University in History of Christianity with a specialization in world Christianity and expertise in African Christianity, women's history, and French Protestant mission history. She holds her Master of Theology from African International University in Kenya, formerly Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. She earned her master's degree in French literature from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Sig has contributed to her field with many publications featured in academic journals and edited volumes, adding to those publications today's book, Birthing Revival, Women and Mission in 19th Century France is her first monograph, published by Baylor University Press in 2022. Congratulations to Dr. Sig. 
So welcome, Dr. Sig, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much uh, for taking the time today to talk about your book. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, I think it would be wonderful if we can begin our conversation today by getting to know you more, Dr. Sig. So do you mind saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, how you came to study and um, do your PhD, how you became interested in that specific field of study, and who were some of your influential mentors and interlocutors that shaped your academic work? Thank you, Byung-ho. I'm originally from uh, the southern United States, but my family moved to France when I was 11. My father was a missionary pastor in, uh, in France. So I grew up going to French school. I grew up in the Reformed Evangelical Church in the Protestant region of the South, mostly in my uh, uh, teenage years. Um, and so there I learned, kind of absorbed through my pores, the history, traditions, and culture of the historic uh, Huguenots. Um, and my favorite place to explore as, uh, as a young person was to go hiking in the Cévennes Mountains, which you'll hear about later. Uh, after, um, after high school, even though I thought I would continue studying in France, my parents uh, wanted me to go to the States. So I studied in the United States uh, for a couple of years in a Christian uh, in a Christian college there. And um, by the time I came back to France, I realized um, that I was no, I was not what I thought I was, which uh, I thought I was French. Um, but I realized that I was not, that I was actually something else. And I was not just fully American either. I was this third culture entity, this third culture kid, as they say right now. So then I went on to get uh, my first graduate degree in French literature from University of Pennsylvania. Um, and taught French for several years in university and high school until our family landed in New Haven, Connecticut, where my husband went to the Yale Divinity School. Then I got a job at the Overseas Ministry Study Center working on the Dictionary of African Christian Biography under Dr. Jonathan Bonk, the founder and director of the project. So about 10 years later, I was able to get a, a Master's of Theology in World Christianity from Africa International University in Kenya. I, during that whole course, that whole new, basically this new job, I wasn't able to get a job teaching French in New Haven, but I found this job working on this project with uh, Dr. Bonk. Um, it really inspired me to, to, um, to want to get to know African Christianity and world Christianity. And so I studied there at AIU. And at that time, um, my mentors in world Christianity just at that master's level were, were Andrew Walls and um, my, uh, my uh, advisors for my thesis there, Philomena Moira and Dr. Diane Stinton. Um, I, as, as someone who worked at o OMSC for several years, I also was like a fly on the wall listening to so many of the greats of world Christianity that came through uh, the, the overseas ministry uh, study center in New Haven for years and years and gave seminars. So, so I could listen to them and uh, learn a lot about them. And so I, I, I was being attracted into that field even before, um, before I did my PhD. Um, and I also learned from the Project Luke fellows who came for the, for the DACB uh, to write biographies um, some of them, they, they taught me so much just through their stories that they had written through their own lives um, and how they had grown up as Christians in Africa, in various parts of Africa. One of them in particular 
Um, Berthe Raminosoa was my research coordinator and field research assistant when I went to do my research in Madagascar for my master's thesis there, where I learned a lot about women. And of course, Dana Robert, who is my PhD, was my PhD advisor, is is was a huge, is a huge, continues to be a huge leading mentor in my life. Uh, she's now a colleague and friend as we work together at, in uh, in Boston at the Center for Global Christianity and Mission. Thank you for uh, sharing your story. And um, as we uh, move to learn more about your books, um, this monograph is a groundbreaking work um, as it sheds light on the previous unseen and unrecognized contribution of women to the renewal of the Reformed Church and the birth of mission during the French Revival. And Dr. Sieg, uh, we would love to hear more about how you came to write this particular book. And so how did this journey begin and what led you to uh, write this important work? Well, because of my long history growing up in France, um, as I started my PhD studies, I used various opportunities I had in the different classes I took to, to kind of to, to deepen my uh, my understanding of Huguenot history. And um, I started exploring uh, little corners of, of that history during that time. And then it became my dissertation topic. Um, and as any PhD student knows, one stumbles one's way through until you find that perfect dissertation topic. Um, but I, um, and, and I, being under Dana Roberts' uh, direction, I was definitely inspired by the stories of women. And so um, there was no, in the story that I, in the history I knew of the Huguenots, I did not know much about any of the women in the history there at that time, just growing up in that environment. And so I was curious about where were the women in the story? Uh, there must have been, there must be, I was just sure there was some narrative uh, that women contributed to uh, behind the revival. Um, and in all the years that I uh, was in the Protestant church in in France, I remember being somewhat mystified by by the this reference to the Reveil or the the revival. The older the older Pro French Protestants would often talk about, oh yes, that that came down to from uh, from the revival. That's one of the history. That's one of the things of the revival. And I didn't know what they were talking about at that time. I was just just a kid, uh, just a teenager, just growing up, and I didn't really know that impact, um, the impact that it had on the re Reformed Church there. Um, but I was able to retrace the very first, I think, the very first contact I had even as a young child to that reference of the revival. When we first moved to Paris, we lived in Grenoble, which is not part of the historically Protestant area of France. And so Grenoble is not a, a, a city with a lot of Protestant churches. And we the closest church to where we lived was this old Protestant, old Reformed church and um, full of a lot of old people and not very many families, not very dynamic. And um, but when our family would show up, there was this old grandfatherly man, wonderful man who took a liking to us. And I don't remember his name because I was only 12 at the time. And um, but every Sunday he would bring us my brother and me, my brother was younger. He was more like seven. He would bring us these wonderful chocolates called Rocher de Souchard that were like, Rocher means rock. 
It was like a rock filled with praline. And it was just this just amazing experience for a kid to look forward to that on a Sunday when the rest of church was extremely boring. But he also, by the time we left, moved away from Grenoble, he had really just, he was just, he just had shown so much love and care to us that um, he gave us a, a going away gift that um, to my brother and me. And, um, and it's, I found it, I have it with me. Uh, it's a, a hymn book. Uh, a very small hymn book with gold pages and you open it up. It's, um, it is, these are the songs of the Salvation Army in French. And so this is an early, an early, how would I say, piece of evidence of the, the legacy of the revival uh, because the Salvation Army is one of those revived movements that, um, that is part of French Protestant culture even today. And so um, I was reminded of that as I was asking, answering this question that you brought up. So um, it's, uh, it was a very dear memory to, to realize that it goes way back to the very beginning of my time in France, this connection with the revival that I've written about in this book, which is a revision of my dissertation. Wow. It uh, seems like as much as you found your topic, your topic, the revival really bond you and called you to um, this journey. This is really fascinating. That's and a good way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> question. Um, what sources did you turn to as you um, wrote about the women's movement um, that took place in France during the 19th century? And how was your writing experience overall? My main sources were archival. There are good archives of the Paris mission, both in Paris and there are some in Lesotho that are digitized. Um, I would have loved to travel to Lesotho, but that um, was not to be. Um, sometimes for for the sources for women, of course, it was slim pickings, and I had to rely on on handwritten, photocopied um, manuscripts that were very hard to decipher um, of the women's minutes of the the their committee meetings. Um, they were often very short, very incomplete. And um, they weren't actually really minutes. Oftentimes they were prayers or prayer requests or references to, to we need to pray about so-and-so because of, of these uh, problems with her family or her illness. Or So there, there was a sense in which the, the documentation by when women themselves was, was very incomplete. So I, it was a very much a process of putting a lot of different puzzle pieces together and um, seeing how they, uh, how would I say, confirmed each other, you know, so I might find evidence of, a, of a, a small reference to something in in these incomplete kinds of minutes, and then I would have to find like a, a confirmation of it through another source, and that was, sometimes it was a little bit of a conjecture on my part, but other times it was, I was able to find evidence that these things um, that I brought up were um, were true. So um, like uh, the, the process of writing this book was so much more enjoyable than the dissertation process itself um, because it was a revision and uh, it was something that I could go and make better. I could, I could add to, I could correct, I could uh, gather insights. And uh, because I had, you know, had a little bit more maturity by the time I wrote it, then it, it felt like what I was able to um, to express was a more clearly formed uh, narrative and uh, theme 
um, and uniting thread. Thank you, Dr. Seif, for sharing that um, intricate process. And for our listeners who have dug deep into the archives of putting the pieces of puzzle together, you know, what you've mentioned, you know, I believe will resonate with a lot of our listeners as well. Now, in taking a closer look into the contents of your book, Dr. Sig, we can see that it includes 10 chapters, um, including an introduction and a conclusion. And you have strategically divided the book into four main parts. So let me quickly go over this uh, four parts for our listeners. So part one entails chapters one through three, and it provides the historical background um, for the book. Part two, chapters four through seven, focuses on two key figures that you will extensively cover, uh, Emily Malay and Albertine de Broglie and the women's movement in Paris. Part three um, includes chapters eight and nine and sheds light on the link between the work of missionary wives in Africa and the work of Paris, uh, uh, the women in Paris as well. And lastly, in part four, chapter 10, we return to France to look at the role of women and their contribution to mission in their own homeland as well. For listeners and future readers, one important aspect that I would like to quickly highlight here that I found very valuable and really on point to what uh, Dr. Sig seeks to do in her work is that she begins almost all of the chapters by providing many biographical sketches of women putting into perspective what was taking place within the lives of women during this important time in women's Christian history. So please take note for our listeners. Uh, you have some a wonderful treat uh, in the beginning of each chapter. And it is in the introductory chapter of your book, Dr. Sig, that you provide the readers with the scope of your work and your methodology, and most importantly, a prelude to what you seek to accomplish in this work. And that is to tell the story of the Protestant women within the religious movement that took place during the early 19th century France. But before we dive deeper into this monograph, it is imperative um, that we learn a little bit more about the context and the time that we are stepping into, which is the 19th century revival movement um, that was taking place among the French Protestant. So Dr. Sig, for our listeners that might be unfamiliar to the French revival, um, do you mind elaborating more on the significance of this period and briefly unpacking some of the layers and complexities of this movement? Um, what did this movement entail and what are some of the crucial aspects that you think uh, we should know about? Thank you. Thank you. I came up with the idea uh, of inserting the mini biographies of women as introduction to chapters um, because, and I just wanted to comment on this, because few women, um, there, are, there are few women whose stories are actually told in this period. Um, and if they are told, they're very incomplete. Um, women's names are often not complete. Their names are missing their first names. We just know them as uh, Madame someone and that's their husband's last name. Um, and so the reason why I included these bios was to honor these women, at least whatever memory we have of them. So um, I feel that it's important because the few women that are well-known in French Protestant history are emblematic. Women like Marie Durand, a Huguenot woman who was in prison for 38 years in the Tower of Constance, simply for being a Protestant. Uh, she could have gotten her freedom uh, if she had only pronounced two words, I abjure, 
but she refused and she stayed there for 38 years. So, so her example of resistance was quite emblematic. Um, and, and that felt important. But anyway, back to the Réveil. What was the Réveil? The Réveil is the French chapter of the evangelical revival, this international revival that started with the first great awakening in the 1730s, both in the American colonies and in continental Europe with John Wesley and George Whitfield and, and others. Um, the French movement came much later because of its Huguenot history that really delayed uh, the arrival of the revival in uh, on the French shores. And you'll, I'll tell you a little bit about this in a minute. Um, the burden of 300 years of persecution uh, definitely was the cause of this. And only really at the French Revolution and beyond uh, was there actual freedom of religion in France, even though there had been a, a previous decree. Um, but after the revolution, um, all religion became unfashionable, really, because it was it was the Enlightenment and rationalism reigned supreme in France for that time. Uh, Catholicism uh, was was uh, persecuted also at that time because um, they were believed to to have basically hoarded um, uh, many of the resources of the French, and so churches were 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 taken over uh, for a while. Um, so the Enlightenment hit France hard in the early 19th century, and it caused a sharp decline in Protestant religious practice. And the revival came into France from across the channel um, with uh, Wesleyan missionaries from uh, Britain and from the East, from Pietists also in uh, Switzerland. Um, the goal of these missionaries and of, of those who became revived in France was to establish or reestablish the the religion of the heart. That is this idea that comes from Pietism, that um, uh, one has to embrace Christianity with one's heart. Um, and the other aspect was to counter the damage of the Enlightenment. That is this rationalism. So the Reveil was um, was also uh, included a rise of voluntary societies and charitable endeavors to address the ills of society like poverty and disease and warfare. There was plenty of that going on at this time with Napoleon's wars in the very early, in the first two decades there. So um, the, the revival eventually led to the establishment of an independent evangelical church in France, which was independent of the state. This is what the, the revivalists in France identified. They believed that um, this was a very key element is that their religion needed to be separate from the state and not the their pastors needed to not be funded by the state, which is what, um, what was happening um, after Napoleon and the organic articles. Um, so um, there were many stripes of evangelicals in France. There were the, the, the Protestant Reformed. There were Moravians that came. There were Quakers and Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans. There, there, there was a diversification of expressions of Protestantism because of the revival. Um, and this revival in France developed its own sort of language. They even called it the language of Canaan. Um, their own practices, even songbooks that were more... Um, how would I say that were more what we would call chorus type songs that we're more familiar with today, um, but but also actual hymns. Um, there was a more fluid sense of Protestant identity that that grew up at this time that shook up the old traditions 
of the reformed Protestant church that was 300 years old. Um, and so these born again Christians, um, there was a sense in which this went back to the early days of the Reformation, where there was a, a, a new awakening to a new reality, but in a different form with some similarities, but some also significant differences. Um, this new revived Protestantism of the of the revivalists had a larger outlook. It had a sense of connectedness, connectedness to a global reality of this international revival and mission, and also because of these international missionaries that had come to them. So it put it pushed the French Protestants out also into the mission field uh, when they eventually uh, got their footing and were able to. Um, to build their own mission movement. Thank you um, for laying out the backgrounds of the uh, French Revival, and it really um, helps us to um, get ready to dive into uh, the part one of your book. Now, uh, part one focuses on the roots of the Hawaii, um, which can be traced back to the Huguenot history, riddled with persecution of Huguenot Protestants by the Catholics and the French monarchy. Specifically in the first two chapters, you go to great lengths to detail the socio-religious dynamics that was being unfolded in France since the early years of Reformation, both the religious and civil persecution endured by the Huguenots due to their Reformed faith, uh, with periods designated as um, the desert years and Huguenots choosing the path of exile and building connections with Moravian Church, uh, we witnessed the substantial role of Huguenot Protestant women, not as bystanders, but as active participants and leaders during their controversial history. And what really captured my attention was the rise of French prophets amid the Huguenot history of perseverance. Um, so Dr. Sig, do you mind speaking more on the significance of prophetism within the Huguenot uh, history and what were the roles of women uh, during the unique time? But before you speak on uh, prophetism, if you'd like to uh, provide a little more context, do please uh, feel free to briefly add anything you'd like to say about the Huguenots that might be helpful in familiarizing our listeners to who they were. Thank you. Um, so for, for a, a short period after the Reformation, the, the Protestant faith um, really, really grew. And at one point represented 10% of the French population. So Protestantism was, had a strong presence, but it was fairly, it was short-lived. Many of the nobles and members of the bourgeoisie, educated people who could read, joined, uh, joined this new faith, this new Protestant faith. Um, and John Calvin and his teachings um, provided a good basis and preparation um, for these Protestant these, uh, this new Protestant population. Um, one, one of his teachings that would be very helpful in, in the times of persecution was his teaching on the priesthood of all believers, which would, which would empower all believers to, to care for each other and to teach each other, even unordained or, or non-pastor uh, uh, individuals, uh, such as women. Um, so there were... It, for, there were ups and downs. There were there were many episodes in um, in this period of of either civil war and um, and 
and conflict as well as persecution. Uh, but at one point, there was um, so at one point there was a, a small lull when there was a, an edict of tolerance, the edict of Nantes that was that was uh, proclaimed in 1598 by Protestant King Henry IV, who then uh, became a Catholic just for the peace of the country. But he was assassinated, and so this was very short-lived. Um, and then several, almost a century later, not quite, um, this edict of tolerance was revoked by Louis XIV. And in the meantime, there it's not that there had been really peace for, for these poor Protestants, but little by little, they were losing all their civil rights as, as, as Louis XIV was taking away this. And the, soon they couldn't teach, soon they couldn't be civil servants, soon they couldn't do this. So little by little, so by the time of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, they, there was not much left to take away from them, except that what that did was it caused the emigration of about 200,000 or so Protestants to neighboring countries. So then France shared this wealth of, of nobles and tradespeople and merchants that went to these following to these neighboring countries and were the source of great wealth for their neighbors. And France lost a huge amount of, of just their, their uh, strongest citizens at this time. Um, so the period of the, of the persecution, and you referred to um, the name that it was given is the desert, uh, le désert. Um, there were actually two periods of the of the of this desert period um, that started in the 1680s, and during this time, that was when it was the most severe persecution. Um, you had you had um, country preachers and even front, even female preachers, prêcheuses, um, uh, some of them trained in Geneva uh, in the seminary there. They would roam the countryside, especially in the southern part of the country. And and they would go into to homes and they would um, and they would try to encourage the faithful there um, to resist the temptation to give up their Protestant faith. Uh, at this time, women would play played an important role. They would teach their children the Psalms. They would teach them to remember anything they could from the sermons they heard from these itinerant preachers. And these women, if they were if they were taken and, and um, arrested, they would spend a lifetime in prison. For that, like Marie Durand. Um, so at this, at the time of, at this time, so then all these preachers were getting, often were getting caught, they were getting executed, they were getting exiled. Um, so more and more, there was a sense of desperation and a loss of, of this connectedness to the church and to the preaching and to the Bible, which was so dear to Protestants. So prophetism emerged out of this crisis and this, this deep, deep, um, dark time um it came it it arrived in the eastern side of the of, of france um not too far from grenoble in the drôme and um they um it 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 affected the lower the lower classes the peasant people the peasants and artisans in the in the in the poor areas of the mountains there in the seven mountains in the southern part and in this in the region called the Balongdok, which was historically the a region which in the mid in the Middle Ages had been had been the locus for uh, heretical movements like the Cathars or the Albigensians, and so here we were again, once again, following that tradition of yet again what they were calling, what the Catholics were calling a heret a heresy, these Protestants. So um, 
and this was a this was a very uh, stark shift. This this the the development of the prophetic movement, as well as the resistance that took that became an armed resistance. Um, the population, as I said, was the the simple people, the humble peasants and artisans. Previous to this, um, it had been. Protestantism had been a, uh, a religion of the upper classes and of of the of the educated bourgeoisie and the nobles, but those had mostly fled the country. And now, what we had was this was this group of people who were ready to take up arms, and yet and they did take up arms for two years in the south. Now these prophets were were mostly were there was a majority of women as well as children among these prophets who would be seized it was a movement of the holy spirit they would be seized with with uh visions and um dreams and they would prophesy in their sleep sometimes it, it was they had documented um occasions of where someone who did not even know how to speak french would actually wake up from their sleep and they would then they only spoke the local patois but they would prophesy or they would give a sermon in french to whoever was around them so there were these there was these extraordinary happenings um so when the the war of the Cévennes started in about 1702 17 around that that early uh part of the seventh of the 18th century um Many of the 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 fighting groups they all they all had women prophets that would come and travel with them, and these women prophets would give them insight into where the 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 king's soldiers were coming to um, to actually um, attack them. They would often tell them, "Oh, they're coming this way," and so then the so then the uh, the kamiza, which is what these these uh, militia were called. Um, uh, they would go another way, and so they wouldn't get caught by the king's shoulder. So this was mystifying to the king. They didn't for for a while. They stayed far, even though they were in smaller numbers than the king's soldiers, much and had many fewer weapons and uh, means for for fighting these soldiers. They stayed way ahead of them. They were also um, because they were full of this sense of the Holy Spirit and God leading them. This God giving sense of divine calling to fight for their faith they they had an assurance that actually terrified the king's soldiers there was one of there one of the psalms and so the at this time one of the things that was very comforting to all the persecuted um huguenots were the psalms and they would sing them and there was one particular psalm psalm 68 which these camisar militia that they would sing as they were rushing down to attack, you know, a very small little group of, of Camisard soldiers would, would rush down upon like a 20,000. There's one scene where there's about 10 or 20,000 of the King's soldiers and they rushed down the hill singing at the top of their lungs, Psalm 68. And it's so unnerved to the King's dragoons and soldiers that they, that they won this battle, that the, the soldiers fled. And so there was a sense of power, a spiritual power that these prophets um, uh, injected into this uh, into this armed fight. Now, this this war only lasted from 1702 to 1704, and then eventually the leaders were either caught, captured, or or uh, executed, and or or cajoled into going into exile. And so the movement died at that point. And um, and after that, the um, 
the church of the desert um right after that they just they condemned pretty much the use of of the prophetism and and all these prophecies because they they disagreed with the the extremism that it was that it represented and the violence and so the women who had had leading roles in this movement lost a lot of ground here and they were kind of relegated once again to kind of back door roles in the church and just working at home um but these french prophets go into exile after the war and this is a prophetic and millenarian missionary movement that then starts they first go to great britain where there's a mixed welcome because once again here we are we have this we have this working class group of prophets that comes into contact with the previous arrival uh, uh, refugees from the huguenots who are nobles educated upper class um uh, people and they do not agree with each other and there's a terrible clash so anyway they have to eventually leave and they go on an itineration of i mean there's there's they they spread out at first in throughout england into ireland and scotland they have these these um missionary uh trips where they were basically evangelizing and quite successfully uh and here the women uh, are part of this movement they're in the majority they can actually travel more easily than men at this point um and they actually risk less than men because uh they are are less important in society and therefore they're less want to being arrested so they can kind of go under the radar so they travel also beyond that they go across into europe um into uh berlin and rotterdam and they also visit halle uh, the the pietists there and they meet auguste franck but there once again they 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 cause problems division franck doesn't agree with what's going on uh when some of his pietists are actually possessed by by the spirit and so then they have to leave there and then they keep on so they, so this is a movement that is fraught quite contra controversial and yet also quite transformative in some ways. Uh, Zinzendorf actually met uh, met these um, these prophets and heard their stories of suffering in France, and he was quite moved by their stories. So, um, and this is at the time when the Moravian missionary movement is starting. So, um, so this is um, the the role of the prophets is actually a, a very influential in the the beginnings the early beginnings of the missionary movement something that's not very well known that we all think of the moravians as the first missionaries and yes indeed they are the first to go that far but 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 you do have these french prophets that even predated the moravian missionaries that have gone out of france into the rest of europe to spread the news of of a revived vibrant faith that they're not calling a revival, but it is in fact a revitalized version of 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 faith. Wow! Thank you, uh, Dr. Safe, for that unique insight on prophetism uh, during this time, which really makes you think more about the special role and the rise of prophets during times of crisis and struggle and challenges uh, and its implications as well. Um, but now segueing into the third chapter titled, quote, Bible Women and Teachers Education, Educating for Mission in the Overland Revival. Here you accentuate the stories regarding first, uh, women's education, and second, their involvement in Bible distribution. Uh, spearheaded by the Protestant pastor by the name of Jean-Frédéric Overland, um, initiatives such as the Knitting Room, 
uh, highlighted the importance of education and provided space for women, both married and single, to be recognized as educators or, quote, guides um, in nurturing children in impoverished settings with life skills and practical knowledge based on Christian teachings and morals. But for this particular question, I would like to focus on the latter part um, regarding women's involvement in Bible distribution, or to be more specific, the birth of, quote, Bible women. I was pleasantly surprised to see this familiar nomenclature, uh, Bible women. I'm sure uh, my co-host Sun Young is also uh, uh, surpri uh, surprised to see this word as well, because we've encountered this word in several other contexts as well, uh, such as in Korea and even also in India. You know, women who have played a central and vital role in the missionary endeavors within their lo local contexts in distributing Bible or sharing the the gospel uh, uh, within their settings. And I was wondering if you could expound more on these Bible women in the context of France during this time. Uh, Dr. Sig, who were these Bible women and what kind of impact did they have? Okay, so let me give a little context here in Oberlin's um, ministry in Alsace. He had a, a very powerful revival ministry that was based on his use of women in spreading the in spreading the the gospel um so this area of alsace where he arrived was very poor working class many children not enough care these these farmers had to work both husband and wife had to work and at one point there was a tragic death that caused Ober oberlin to think okay i need to do something about these unsupervised children and so then that is when he came up with this idea of the knitting rooms where he would put in, he would, he would bring in one woman teacher to watch over these children and to teach them and to train them in, in the faith and in just basic principles of uh, reading um, and, and, and learning and crafts and things like that um, and playtime. So then he, so this was this beginning of his training of young women guides for children um, and so um, as, as part of, of the teaching, which was very much centered on the Bible, the, this pietist teaching that put the Bible at the heart of the teaching, um, there was a lack of Bibles at that time, um, even though there were, Bi so Bible societies were emerging at this time in different places, particularly in, in, in Britain. Um, uh, one of them was called the British and Foreign Bible Society. And um, so Oberlin needed Bibles to train these, these teachers and to also spread out to among his very extensive parish. At one point he had 50 Bibles, but the way he, he, how would I say, multiplied the number of Bibles was to cut the Bibles up into portions and spread out the pieces of the Bible in, in, so there was more than, than 50 Bibles. It ended up being 50, you know, maybe 150 pieces of Bible, who knows, but, um, so these young, young women would, um, would take these portions of the Bible and they would travel to homes uh, in this extensive parish that he had, and they would read the Bible to the families and the parents. Now, it had taken a long time for, for uh, Oberlin to actually get these families to warm up to the idea of education and of learning, because at first they, they, they didn't want their children, for example, to go to school. They wanted them closer to home and all that, but he, he showed them that they really needed 
to, to learn. And so then the families became interested in learning and hearing the Bible. So this was a whole part of a movement here. And so um, what happened is that, so these were, these were the earliest kinds of Bible women. This, this is what they were doing. They were reading the Bible to these families. Now, the way this came out into, um, into circulation more broadly is at one point, Oberlin wrote to the British and Foreign Bible Society a thank you note to thank them for three Bibles that they had sent him because he had write, he had written to ask for Bibles. And he described three women and their ministry of reading the Bible in the family. So he described what they did. And when Charles Stokes Dudley read his thank you note, he was inspired to form women's committees in Britain to distribute Bibles. And so in 1868, a French historian, Orantin Douin, um, described these British women in French in, in his, in his uh, historical account. He says um, these women were going out as Bible women or readers of the Bible. And, and he wrote this in French, but he used the word Bible women in English. It was the English term. And so he, this, is, this is one way we could kind of mark the beginning of this idea of the Bible woman, because here is that term that appeared in the historical record. Um, and so these, um, and as you pointed out, Bible women then became prominent figures in the larger mission history in Korea and in China and in Japan and wherever, uh, India, um, because they, they went into families to, to, uh, to be part, they were strong parts of the missionary movement there. Now at, at this time also, um, in, Oberlin's area, there was an early women's Bible society that was founded and launched there to distribute Bibles. So what this, what this particular act shows is that women were committed from the beginning to the work of, of distributing Bibles. And so they showed leadership in forming these societies. Um, so it was one of their primary concerns. And this is what is going to happen also in um, the movement of revival in Paris. The leaders of the revival in Paris, namely Madame Albertine de Breuil. So uh, Madame de Breuil is, is a key figure in the uh, founding of the Women's Auxiliary of the Bible Society in, in Paris that takes place in 1823. She has a male co-leader um, co of this women's group, uh, overseer, but she is the primary leader of this, of this group. And this group brings together prominent Protestant women who sometimes are, are, are married to Catholic nobles and uh, um, members of high society, but um, they meet together to, to help distribute Bibles in Paris. Now, under Du Bois' uh, leadership of, of the Women's Auxiliary, this group lays the groundwork for their missionary calling, and they actually... They actually devise an organizational model for Bible distribution, which is which is it's a it's a quite astute strategy on how to divide up forces and what in among the different um, uh, uh, quartiers of Paris and and how to how to take notes and how to it's it's a whole it's a whole guidebook for these Bible women who are going out and in, into into these families. 
So um, it's a very important very important texts right now are are being are being written by Du Bois and by the the women of the Bible Society in Paris that will then serve for the women's committee of the Paris Missionary Society. Um, and one uh, one of the texts that Du Bois writes uh, a, a remarkable text, an early feminist text that is published in the in the uh, archive, the archives of of Christianity. Um, describes women actually as the best candidates for Bible distribution because even more than men, because they have a deeper spirituality. That's one of the reasons because they can bridge differences between social classes. Another reason. I mean, she, she elaborates why women are such good, um, good candidates for this particular um, task in mission. And then later when the women's committee of the mission of the Paris mission, um, uh, begin, they will also use this foundational text as they talk about their missionary calling at that time. Well, thank you, um, Dr. Sieg. Um, it is fascinating to hear and learn how small thing or idea or simple act of faith really turn into a wave of movement. And um, you really shows us women were in behind the scene and also at the center of such uh, movements. So the two subsequent chapters um, build on what we have discussed in the previous chapter and on uh, John Frederick Oberlin's work, uh, highlighting the women's movement in Paris that focuses on education and continued Bible distribution through the women's Bible uh, societies. Here we are introduced to uh, two prominent figures of the 19th century, uh, the French uh, revival, um, Emily Molly and Albertine de Bouillet, uh, and their roles as leaders of the women's movement. So even though there are many things we can talk about these two chapters, what I would like to draw your attention to is some of the controversial issues that were taking place in Paris and their implications in chapter four, you enlighten the readers regarding the socioeconomic reality of Paris with problems of famine, poverty, and broken homes, especially the rise of the number of abandoned children. Um, here we see Emily Molly playing a pioneering and pivotal role in creating um, infant schools. So, Dr. Sieg, do you mind speaking more on Emily Molly's story and um, the infant school and how did this also connect to female uh, philanthropy. Thank you. So parallel to the work of women in Bible societies, another important aspect of women's contribution to the revival was their work in early infant education and care. Now, Emilie Mallet was an important pioneer in that area. She was an extraordinary woman um, who... Um, lost both her parents at an early age, and then moved to Paris um, with her husband, who was a banker. And um, she, in her grief, um, she uh, underwent a, a vibrant renewal of her faith after hearing a sermon by, by a charismatic Reverend Frédéric Monod, who was a revival leader in Paris and a, a very well-known uh, preacher and sought-after uh, inspirational preacher for his his strong messages on the revival. Um, so Emily Mallet, with her revived faith, then started joining various voluntary society initiatives. One of them was the Paris Bible Society, 
And there she met her, her dear friend, Albertine de Broglie, and, and um, the two of them became fast friends, and they would work together both in the Bible Society and later on in the Paris Women's uh, Committee Society of the Paris Mission. So um, at this time, poverty in, in Paris was extremely high. 67% uh, of the Paris of Paris and its region was considered indigent. And as you mentioned, the family unit had disintegrated. Children were were uh, born out of wedlock and abandoned. They were street children. And these women, religious women, both Protestants and Catholics, saw that there was a need for some kind of solution. In 1825, at an informal gathering of Protestants, Malay heard about the work of infant schools in Britain. So she and her friends were there, and they listened to this kind of informal report of what was happening in Britain. And this inspired them to go home to look up and read about everything they could find on infant schools, and then to, to start that same kind of movement in Paris to address the issue of childhood poverty and homelessness. And Malay became a leader in the women's committee of the infant school committee uh, in Paris. She was the secretary and she worked with the Catholic head of the committee, who was a much older woman at the time. And Malay was extremely dynamic and Malay would run around and do all the work. And, and um, in, in deference to, the, to her, her leader, Madame de Pastore, but Madame de Pastore deferred to her because of her, her strong energy and uh, visionary leadership. Um, so, um, she, she became, Malay became the lifelong, her lifelong, um, calling was to, to lead this movement of infant schools for the next 30 years until she died. The year of her death in 1856, 300,000 children were being cared for in infant schools all over France. That is more than in more than 2,500 infant schools. That was an, an enormous legacy for her. Um, so in this, uh, in this endeavor and, and many of the other ones, Malay and other notable Protestant and Catholic women were part of an emerging phenomenon, a phenomenon that was just coming out at this time of female philanthropy that was different. There was a gender aspect to the different from just regular philanthropy out of, out of, uh, by men. This philanthropy focused on funding charitable initiatives related to poor children. That was what is particular to this particular brand of philanthropy. Thank you for that answer. Um, as you move to the second half of your book, uh, Dr. Sig, chapter Sig locates women's story within a bigger picture and rewrites the larger narrative of the history. And that is something that I really appreciated about your book. And chapter six is a Chapter six is a prime example as you highlight the history of the Paris Mission Women's Committee. This chapter draws on a larger picture and reveals the women's contribution in the formation of the Paris Mission Society. So, for example, we learn from this chapter that the women in the committee were brilliant fundraisers and effective network builders. Then, um, their network promoted the Paris mission throughout France and eventually laid the foundation for the spread of the French revival. So, Dr. Sig, would you tell us more about uh, the birth of the Paris Mission Women's Committee in 1825, especially uh, their contribution in the development of the Paris mission? This is probably one of my favorite parts of the story. And... Um, 
I'd like to start by simply reading uh, kind of a staged account of, of how this women's movement came out um, as part of the, the beginning of this women's committee. Um, so this is, this is part of that founding story. It was noon on Friday, April 14th, 1826 at the Temple de l'Oratoire, Rue Saint-Honoré in the heart of Paris. The General Assembly of the Paris Evangelical Mission Society, founded in 1822, was about to begin. Inside the church, the large crowd, even larger than the previous year, was murmuring with excitement. The air crackled with anticipation. In the front, at a long desk, sat 17 men, mostly elected members of the executive committee. Around the sides sat pastors from the far corners of France and abroad, Amsterdam and New York, for example. There were also representatives from Bible societies in Paris and the provinces, as well as from British missionary agencies. Dignitaries included the Duc de Breuil, a Catholic, and the husband of Albertine de Breuil. The 12 members of the new women's committee sat in the front rows of chairs directly in front of the desk. After Pastor Maron's opening prayer, speeches by the president and the treasurer, and the annual report of the Mission Society, Pastor Frédéric Monod stood up to read the Women's Committee report. In May of the previous year, led by Albertine de Breuil, the women had formed a committee without male permission or oversight to support the work of the Paris Mission. They had elected their own officers and written their, their bylaws. In November, they finally wrote a letter to the male executive committee to inform them of the existence of their committee. With the reading of their report at the General Assembly on that memorable day, the Women's Committee made its public debut. A women's movement came out into the opening, into the open. So by the time of what I describe as a coming out of the women's movement here at this time, a lot had been happening. These women had been uh, meeting together. Um, so a group, a core group of high society Protestant women who were deeply involved in many charitable initiatives in Paris had been meeting. Um, and even if they could not at that time by society standards be the leaders of different initiatives, they these women were still active. They were part of women's auxiliary societies and their role was to assist in the vision of whatever voluntary society it was, such as the Bible Society. And these women would meet together in each other's homes or in salons, that is, in these leading meeting places for high society par uh, Parisians. And in these salons, they would discuss the latest political and religious and literary developments. Madame de Stal, Madame Germaine de Stal, had led a famous salon for many years that attracted international figures in arts and politics. And her daughter, Albertine de Breuil, inherited the leadership of her salon at her mother's death. So these women who formed the Women's Committee were also reading the international literature of the revival coming from Britain. They were tracking with what was happening all over um, uh, in Britain and in other places. Frédéric Monod and others started similar journals in France, the leading ones being the, the uh, Archives of Christianity and the Journal of Evangelical Missions in French, 
that compiled all mission related news from abroad until the until the Paris mission had their own missionaries to report on. So by the time of the announcement of the founding of the Paris Mission Women's Committee in 1826, the women had spent months planning and organizing and writing their own bylaws. They had already started mobilizing other women's groups in their networks in the provinces, and they used the organizational model of the Bible Society in their strategy for fundraising and promotion throughout France. Even women's, even children's groups in Protestant churches got involved in raising funds. So they, this was, this was the manifestation of a mature, of a, of a maturation in this women's, what I'm calling a women's movement. At that time, it actually uh, publicly became obvious that it was a movement and that there were, there were more sophisticated um uh, tools and strategies that these women could use to raise funds for the Paris mission that they were employing elsewhere. Thank you, Dr. Sig. It's so um, good to um, learn that you really enjoyed writing chapter six because chapter six was also uh, one of my favorites, but um, not the only one because of chapter seven, uh, because chapter seven gives us a, a close look into the identities of women in the Paris Mission Women's Committee. It is fascinating that you collect all these scattered reports, documents, and writings, then trace these women's understanding of themselves as women and their calling to mission, in your words, divine calling of femina or fem female missionary calling. What strikes me is that these women affirmed a strong sense of calling to mission, not just for themselves, but also for all other women. And in support of this idea and to promote this calling, um, the women leaders of the Paris mission, like Madame Jouera and Madame de uh, Borrier, uh, developed theological reflections of women and mission. So here I see the four mothers of French feminist theologians. Uh, then, of course, you offer us a thorough scholarly um, reflections on uh, some ambivalence and ambivalence and limitations in these women's identities. Um, so, Dr. Sig, as you tell us about what this female missionary calling is about, and how did this women's calling create space for women in the 19th century French Protestant missionary movement? Important in women's missionary calling um, that this chapter talks about are two things, agency and autonomy. When De Broglie writes about it uh, in her seminal text for the Bible Society, these are foundational principles. Um, but unity of purpose and action were also important. Um, and and so these things are reflected in in a short little quote from one of the women's reports by uh, that was written by the president of the Paris Women's Committee at the time, Madame Juira. This is when she, the the Women's Committee decides that it's finally time to write to the male executive committee of the Paris Mission to inform them of the existence of their committee. Though I can't imagine that the the husbands didn't have some inkling because their wives, their wives, uh, the husbands were in the executive committee and many of the wives were in the women's committee, so they must have had a sense of it. But anyway, in this in this official uh, this official report or uh, letter, Madame Juillard writes, 
the Lord, whose blessings have so obviously fallen on the Evangelical Mission Society, has aroused in the heart of several women the desire to meet together as an auxiliary society with the goal of raising funds for the work of missions. The yearly meeting on April 14, 1825, during which such moving speeches were given, powerfully contributed to arousing zeal. The committee will have the honor, Mr. President, of informing you of its organization and bylaws when all the members are able to meet and to finalize their adoption. So there's a striking difference, it seems, in the missionary calling of women, which is evident in this, in this women's committee report uh, and in all the ones that every year the women would produce for the annual meeting. It's like there's a focus on living faith and on action, things that are happening on the ground among people, um, revived churches and communities and changed lives. There's an enthusiasm. There's a what they would what some called an ardor, um, and some Protestants at that time did not agree with this ardor. These this this female ardor in the faith was disturbing and got in the way and seemed to not focus on what was important. Um, but these women were inspired, um, uh, and they they were inspired by this renewed faith they have, but also they were inspired by the many stories they were reading of other women's renewed faith and missionary calling, such as Harriet Newell, one of the very earliest uh, missionaries to, in, uh, to India, uh, who died even before getting to the mission field. But this sacrificial life for this young woman who died even before she arrived uh, was so inspirational to these to to the French women, for example. Um, but central to their to the calling of these French women, as they describe it themselves, was two were two things: Jesus's love and um, uh, his commandment to love one another, and the ideal of motherly love. So let me read what they what they say about about their own missionary calling. This is not just ordinary religious sentiment. It is something more touching, more Christian. It is something that only results from the gospel of him who is love, of him who first loved us and gave us this new commandment, love each other as I have loved you. These are natural feelings in all their strength, but so united, so identified with love and godly faith that they only make up one beam of light. It is motherly love with its meticulous care but so purified, so governed by a superior love that this frail mother can, without the least effort, place her beloved child for this life and the next in the arms of the God who saves. These are the most intimate family ties made for eternity that will go through death without being broken for even an instant. So this was the powerful motivation of these women in their missionary calling. And this was very early on, before in France, before there were actual single women missionaries, these women, mostly married, a few single women among them, were feeling this call as missionaries, and they identified as missionaries themselves. They saw themselves extraordinarily gifted for mission. Um, they felt that they were able to bridge the economic, uh, socioeconomic divide in, in French society for fundraising and promotion. 
They were better able to persevere, to trust in God's almighty power. They, they felt that they were sources of social renewal. They were spiritual champions. They built unity. And they also, and this feels very modern, um, they also justified the fact that they could do it all. They were super women. They didn't use that term, but they, they justified the fact that they were able to both be faithful mothers and wives in their homes and to go out and do all these acts of mercy in society in case anybody had a criticism. So this was quite exceptional um, and, and very feminist in its, in its language and in their calling. But one difference with um, other uh, female initiatives elsewhere, say in Britain or in the United States or in the, in the colonies at that time, was that they did not advocate for leadership and status and, and the ability to speak publicly or to preach a sermon. They, they did not do that like, like in other places. In this, in this way, they differed from other, other strains of, of uh, pre-proto-feminists, if I could say so. Um, and so that, that's why there was this ambivalence. And so there was um, one writer who wrote about, about this uh, women's calling and all of that, even though she, she wanted, it, there was an ambivalence in the way she was writing about this missionary calling. As in her concluding words, it seems like she came full circle around to where De Bruyne and Mallet were, were advocating for this full recognition of missionary, women missionaries and all that fully called by God, fully blessed by it. Um, and yet she couldn't quite come out to say it. So it was this very interesting, interesting um, attempt at describing something that wasn't quite there. Um, so, uh, but they were definitely, these were, these were early feminists and they were, they were doing what they felt God called them to do and managing to do it quite well, actually. And their husbands were, uh, were supportive of them, and that was very helpful, obviously. Well, Dr. Sig, thank you for that fascinating insight regarding the lives of these female missionaries during this time uh, who were able to take on multiple roles in their lives and in their duties as well. Uh, for the following two chapters, you expand the scope of the book by taking us to Southern Africa, where women missionaries pioneered ways for the Paris mission in Lesotho. There is so much to unpack in chapters eight and nine, and among many, I'd like to spend some time talking about missionary Elizabeth Lyndall Roland um, and the Lesotho mission. As you show us, uh, Elizabeth Roland is a pioneering figure in many ways, as you highlight in chapter eight, her life journey from a successful missionary herself, then to a missionary wife and her creative contribution to the early Lesotho mission with her infant school. And your analysis successfully shows that she opened new ways for women to fulfill their missionary calling. So, uh, Dr. Sig, would you tell us more about missionary Elizabeth Lyndall Roland, especially about her influence on the women who followed her steps as, quote, as women, as a spouse, and as a mother, end quote, and also as an educator and a missionary? Elizabeth Lyndall was an extraordinary woman. She was British. And um, she became the, uh, a single uh, female missionary to the Cape. So when she went uh, as a missionary and was arrived in the Cape in 1829, um, um, she arrived on the same ship as the first round of missionaries from the Paris mission. 
Uh, and among those missionaries was Samuel Roland, her future husband. Um, but um, Elizabeth grew up and and was attracted to the teaching of infant schools uh, in in Britain. And so she was a brilliant teacher and a scholar in some ways, uh, very interested in intellectual debate and, and discourse and um, very educated and a teacher of, of infant schools. And John Philip recruited her to actually come as a missionary to the Cape to start infant schools down there among slave children. John Philip was an advocate, was an anti-slavery advocate. And so he uh, wanted um, to create educational opportunities for slaves at that time. So um, Elizabeth Lindell was very versed in Pestalozzi's uh, pedagogy, which was a leading pedagogy at the time. Um, it was very child-centered, uh, had gentle discipline. It was not like the harsh um, discipline that we read about, say, in Charles Dickens, for example, where there was a lot of physical um, discipline and beatings and children suffered. Um, but this was a positive learning environment. Uh, infant schools were for children from ages two to six, approximately. Women were the, were the teachers. Um, they uh, were to teach an interest in nature, learning uh, by doing rather than just books, uh, give them a moral sense, teach them about scripture. Um, the teacher was to be loving and caring. There was not to be any physical punishment. Um, they started their day with prayers and hymns. This was an ideal pedagogy for children in the mission field. And so John Philip was insightful enough to see this, that this was a good missionary pedagogy there. And so um, she, she pioneered um, these infant schools in the Cape. Um, and um, she enjoyed it immensely. Uh, these these became building blocks of a of a successful mission practice in Lesotho, and it was the source of revival both on the mission field and in France, um, as the children in, in uh, Lesotho would write to children in France. Um, so this um, she she was actually interrupted in her work in the Cape, which she enjoyed immensely. Teach first teaching uh, the slave children. Uh, which was the the love of what she the best thing that she loved doing down there, and then she also had to teach the the uh, children of Dutch settlers, which she enjoyed much less. Um, she was interrupted in that in that work by a marriage proposal by Samuel Roland, who wanted her uh, wanted her to accept his proposal of marriage to then go to Lesotho and start infant schools in Lesotho for the Paris mission, and. She had by that time already decided she wasn't going to marry. And for some reason, we don't know. He was very, he, Roland must have been extremely persistent because what in the world made her decide who changed her mind? We don't know. But anyway, she, she married him and they moved to Lesotho and they began the work of infant schools. The end, they founded the first infant schools in, um, under, under uh, Samuel Roland. And she was the first missionary wife in the Lesotho mission. So the, the Lesotho mission was the first mission of the Paris Mission Society. And um, by the time she had, uh, had arrived there, um, there was uh, another missionary, uh, the several other missionaries, among whom uh, the leading missionary, the one who, who dominates a lot of the writing from the Paris mission was 
His name was Eugène Casalis. Um, and um, then as, as missionary wives arrived and, uh, and became part of the mission, Lindell would train them and they would, um, and they would, uh, they would all have infant schools and other schools as they, you know, infant schools, and then the, the schools moving up into secondary schools and all that to, um, to train these children to then become acting members in the church. And so this was a, a great model for, um, for mission here. Um, and, um, it also pointed out the important role of, of women in this whole, in the whole mission endeavor. Uh, the, the Basutu leader at the time, Mushweshwe, pointed out that when these mission wives, missionary wives arrive for the first time, um, he pointed out to uh, Casalis uh, that finally the missionary team was complete um, because the, the Basutu women could have their own missionary. And so there was a sense in which the women completed this team. And, and so this was important. Um, in a, one of the things that we have that tells us a lot about Lindell's uh, experience as a missionary was uh, we have uh, a book of her recollections. And this is a rare, a rare story. It um, it's, um, was published um, um, by, uh, by someone who wanted to preserve her thoughts and her her journal basically, and it's a and it's a fairly blunt, non glamorous account of her life. Unlike many of the other accounts that you find in the missionary journals and all that, where we wanted where everything needed to be uh, light and and joy, and this was much less, much more down to earth account of of her experience as a missionary wife. And um, unfortunately, it, she did not have a happy experience as um, as a wife which was um, was the sad part of her story. And it's not a, a, an isolated phenomenon among missionary wives at that time. A lot of women would marry for the job, quote unquote, that is the mission uh, and not for love. And so sometimes that worked out and sometimes it did not. Uh, Lyndall makes a, a heartbreaking confession in this, in, in her recollections here, where she says, um, uh, according to the maxims of the world, our union, that is her union with Roland, would could not be called happy. Scarcely could two characters be more opposite than my husband's and my own. Yet in devotion to the cause of mission, we were one. God would teach me that in himself alone was the only source of happiness. I had said I will leave all. He helped me to be true by destroying self in all that had hitherto constituted my life. I was to be henceforth mentally and nationally alone. So we see that, that in all of her work for the mission and for children and for the women, that um, it was difficult. There was a sense of isolation. Um, but she also, she also she had a powerful impact um, among the women um, in the Lesotho mission, but also the uh, the women's committee in Paris, she would write them about uh, about her work, and the women would be so encouraged to hear to read of all the work she was doing. And sometimes she would write them directly and ask for donations and for money that was needed for various things. And the women's committee would raise the money, and they were very responsive. So. She was a, uh, Lindell was a key figure. Thank you, Dr. Sieg. And thank you for shedding uh, light on the lives of um, this woman like uh, Lindell. 
And thanks to your work, um, you know, the, their lives and their works are now seen and heard and even part of our memory of the past. And chapter 10, um, we move to chapter 10. And in your word is the last piece on the role of women in the narrative of revival and mission in the parallel golden ages of the Hebei and the Lesotho mission. So, and the piece is uh, the French deaconess movement spearheaded by women and run by women. While reading this chapter about Protestant women's commitment to charity and mission, there was one word that kept coming to my mind, which was resilience. Um, thanks to your thorough narrative of the movement's history, I see the resilience of the co-founder of the Paris Deaconess um, and Caroline Malvejong when she did not compromise her vision for the movement in working with the male co-founder. And I also see the resilience of the committee of the Strasbourg Deaconess Movement the community. Um, as you point out, the committee was the first kind composed entirely of women. And you also mentioned the resilience, resistance, and tensions surrounding the Deaconess movements. So Dr. Sig, would you tell us more about the meaning of the Deaconess movement in the history of the French Revival and the French Protestant women's movement in the 19th century? The founding of the Deaconesses um, was in two, in two separate places, a response to the... Um, how would you say, the decline of the revival. There was a cooling of, of the ardor and of the enthusiasm of the revival and divisions were rising. Um, there were people that were, they were, they were fighting, there was infighting. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of distrust. And so this, the, the, the Paris deaconesses, the, the deaconess de Roy, um arose in, in a conversation between a, uh, a pastor in Paris and one of his former parishioners in the Bordeaux area, they started writing letters back and forth to each other. First of all, bemoaning the state of uh, the religious state of France and Paris and where things were and the divisions and, and all that was going on, the rationalism that was creeping back in and what to do about it. And so then, so then this this idea of a um, community of women that would be at the service of the poor and that would that would model unity and holistic service for mission um, was born between these two, and um, it was meant to be a movement of of uh, of service to the poor and to the education of children as well as women, uh, rehabilitate women from the prison system in Paris. So um, uh, Antoine Vermeil, who was the pastor in Paris, um, managed to managed to inspire um, uh, Caroline Malvezin to think about, okay, what about this new idea? She she had to listen to the Holy Spirit before she decided whether or not she wanted to spearhead and become the 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 head of this deaconess community in Paris. And then she did accept. She did perceive that that was what she was being called to do. And so what this um, the deaconesses were meant to portray for the rest of, of, of society as well as the Protestant church was uh, a deep connection in the body of Christ, a, a commitment to each other, um, as well as the, the 
incarnation of this love of Christ in society through service. So um, Malvazin at one point drew, drew a tree in which uh, she was trying to illustrate to, um, to Vermeil her vision of what this, her de the deaconess uh, ministry would be. And so there would be several branches. So for her, branch number one was teaching to train children infant, uh, in infant schools and in schools and in boarding, the, the women's boarding residences, exhortation, so free classes in Sunday schools, Branch number three would be protection, that is to protect the what they called the repentant girls. These would have been women who might have been been ended up on the street because, um, or former prostitutes, for example, as asylum for the elderly, uh, for unemployed, for female laborers. Um, branch four was relief, hospitals. Uh, branch five was support. So this was housing for all who did not have enough revenue to live alone. And so she saw these as all these different branches um, that would not necessarily grow at once. She recognized there was a lot there. Um, they uh, initially focused on, as I said, work among children and among repentant women, um, among former prisoners, and um, and infant schools. They were also uh, they also helped there. Uh, so the, in um, there was a among their vision. They had several several elements that were important um, that uh, both uh, Vermeil and Marvazin outlined as they were refining the idea of what this community would would be and do. And so the five the five main points of their vision were that the kingdom of heaven or that the vision of the kingdom of God would be announced and promised. That is to to extend the holistic work of the gospel. There would be unreserved dedication that is complete renouncement of self and commitment to the mission even through celibacy um they in paris had a stronger stance on celibacy than the deaconesses in strasbourg that that made it that made it a strong commitment for uh five years at a time at which point you could opt out if you wanted to but in paris the deaconesses were expected to stay with it. Um, community life was the third value. Um, and in this section, these were the principles of the religious community, the authority of the superior of the sister superior, sharing of belongings, um, service and sobriety, simplicity of life. The fourth element was a spirit of love, holiness and unity. These three qualities were, were very important to the missionary life. Um, sacrificial giving of self and prayer and devotional life and interconfessional cohesion. So these women would work in contact with not just other Protestants, but also uh, Catholics um, in their endeavors and an evangelical foundation. And this was the importance of the Bible as their sole authority and guide. Um, uh, they were also loyal to the evangelical churches of France and the reformed communities of, of, of France as well. So they were loyal to the church, but also resolutely interconfessional, that is working with other religious entities there. So um, the Paris deaconesses, their movement um, originated at exactly the same time, but through the, the, the vision and inspiration of, of a Lutheran pastor at the time. And what was unique to the Paris deaconess movement is that the 
the uh, overriding um, uh, committee that ran the deaconesses was uh, entirely made up of women, only women. And so that was that was also a fairly uh, exceptional at that time. So these houses of deaconesses, um, both the Strasbourg deaconesses, the Strasbourg deaconesses focuses, focused more on education of children, schools, and and hospitals. So they trained nurses to go into these hospitals, as and then they also had teachers. So it was a little different of an emphasis than the Paris uh, deaconesses. But these houses of deaconesses grew and expanded um, throughout France, you know, from they this radiated outwards, the creation of new houses of deaconesses throughout the country uh, into the late 19th century and even the 20th century. Um, so they still exist right today, but um, their communities are very old right now and um, not sure what their future holds for them. But I visited both communities. Thank you, Dr. Sig, for that uh, detailed insight and history. Um, and as we head towards the end of our interview, there are two questions I would like to ask you at this time, and that is, what do you hope scholars working on world Christianity will take from your book? And, you know, what new doors for research would you say your book opens up to? Well, one thing I I hope that my book will do will, is that it will provide insights into what French mission history can can contribute to the the discourse on world Christianity. That there's a lot of uh, rich resources there that are untapped um, because it's not a very well known history. Uh, when it comes to women's history, I I would I consider my work simply a first generation um, book that tries to write a concerted narrative of a women's movement in France. And I hope that others will come behind me that will that will create a better, more complete narrative of this and, and bring in other women's stories to this whole overarching narrative so that we can see where, um, where women uh, helped contribute to this movement. It's, it's, mission is only, is only something that can be done when both men and women are working together uh, in, in harmony. It's not something that can be done just on the, with one or the other of these two, the best the best and most healthy um, initiatives and mission provide opportunities for leadership and service for both men and women working together. And that's, and that's one thing that um, comes through a little bit in my book, but it also just highlights how these were separate, um, but the two were still complementary in that the women helped the primary uh, movement uh, move forward. Uh, it couldn't have happened without the women. And so I, I hope simply that that will provide insights that can be incorporated elsewhere. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sieg, again for your meaningful work. And also thank you for setting the ground for uh, many more future work uh, that would be inspired by your work and try to see the history from the women's perspective and the perspective of those who are unheard and unseen. And as we conclude today's interview, there is one final question we would like to ask you, and that is, do you mind sharing with us your current and future projects and what you hope to work on? Thank you for that question. Um, well, one project I'm working on right now, and it's at the very beginning, is something that, um, that also originated during my uh, uh, PhD studies 
was um, a text that I discovered by Jan Hus, the Czech Reformation reformer. Uh, and um, he wrote a text in the um, in the early 1400s that um, that uh, was directed to women, and it's called the daughter in Czech. It's a vernacular text that he addressed to uh, women, probably living in a community not too far from where he was preaching in Bethlehem Chapel. And what's so exceptional about this about this little text is that it's 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 a very it has a very sweet, warm, and welcoming tone towards these women who probably could have been biggins, that is, these, these, uh, uh, these dedicated women dedicated to service, living together in community. And he basically was writing to them um, lessons in spirituality. So this is a, a book, uh, this is a, a very small book that is a, uh, meant to be a spirituality for women, like a spiritual practices for women. And there's 10 steps, 10 chapters, very short chapters. And uh, he means to empower these women to be um, active uh, leaders in society. And uh, there's there's a great respect for uh, for their work. And so I'd like to have this out there. Uh, there's only one translation of it in um, into French. And so I'm working on uh, with uh, people uh, with translators to make a translation into English so it can be circulated in English as well. So that's that's my project right now. Well, Dr. Sig, that project sounds very interesting and we look forward to uh, reading more on uh, your works as well. And once again, Dr. Sig, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank, thank you. you every and thank you everyone uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored birthing revival, women and mission in 19th century France written by Michelle Miller-Sig and published by Baylor University Press in 2022. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi. And Sonyoung Lee. And please stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.